For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Hello again. How are you? Now, have you listened to our previous episode on Article 22 in Laos? If not, I suggest you check it out because these two go together. Actually, I say two, but next week's is also linked. So maybe it's like a three-parter. We're going to hear from British fashion designer Professor Helen Storey, who is UNHCR's designer in residence and has been working in Zatari refugee camp in Jordan. But now you're going to meet photographer Giles Dooley and hear how he went from working for magazines like Vogue and for the music industry, photographing rock stars, to working with Save the Children and UNHCR. Since 2004, Giles's portrait photography has taken him to places like Iraq and Jordan, to Lebanon, South Sudan, Angola, the list goes on, but he's telling human stories, and they're mostly focused on refugees and war. In 2011, he was working as a photographer in Afghanistan, when Giles himself was severely injured by an IED. He is now a triple amputee. But, would you believe it? In 2012, so a year later, he was back in Afghanistan, continuing his work documenting the human stories behind conflict. Now, let's not sugarcoat it. This is upsetting. The legacy of war is not pretty. It's violent, harrowing. And be warned, some of the stories that Giles tells are graphic. And yet, this interview is full of warmth and laughter and epic jokes. I mean... (laughs) actually ridiculous I, at one point I just have no words when Giles is telling me these crazy stories if there was a prize for the most crazy stories told down the pub he would definitely win but mostly this interview is about hope I asked Giles about the word resilience and he told me it's not his favorite and you're going to hear why I also ask him about physical pain which he lives with every day and we talk about that But mostly, he says he just feels lucky to be able to continue taking photographs and telling stories and making human connections. And lucky is how I feel to be able to bring you this story. So I want to thank Giles for taking his time to share it with us. And encourage you to follow his work. You can find it at legacyofwar.com. And you can see what he's cooking on Instagram. He's at one O-N-E underscore armed underscore chef. And while you're there, check me out at Mrs. Press. I'm always keen to hear what you make of the show. Giles, I'm really glad we've got this moment to actually yeah. get together because we've been trying to do this for a while now. We tried to meet in Laos. Yeah, and I burst my appendix on the, just the day before the flight. So unfortunately, couldn't make it. Pretty good excuse. Yeah, actually, it was quite, it's funny. I'm notorious for traveling when injured and sick. And so the night before I was flying, luckily my sister and my nephews were visiting. And that night I was in pain. I went to bed and I said, I'll be fine. I'll just sleep it off and go in the morning. And five in the morning, I was trying to get in my car and I could hardly move. My sister saw me and she was literally had to take the car keys from me because I was just like, I'll sleep it off. Because your pain threshold, you just think pain. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I've always been like that. My mum always said no sense, no feeling. So I was um, literally trying to climb in the car and my sister pulled the car keys away from me, called an ambulance, and within an hour I was in surgery. And they said, if I got on that flight, I wouldn't have made it. This is another example of you saying, and I think we can all agree, that maybe you are indeed lucky that you weren't on that flight. <laughs> I mean, God. Um, yeah. We, I mean, were, we were so, I mean, hearing that. I was just frustrated. I, I, I think it's only the first, second time I've ever missed any kind of work through anything. So, um, so I was just more frustrated. And then a month later, I got malaria in South Sudan. So it was definitely a a bit of a month. Where have you been recently? Because we're recording this in London, but Mm -hmm. you've actually just been in Rwanda. You've just been in... Rwanda. Yeah, I was in in Congo, in the DR Congo. Yeah, I think 19 countries last year. So I kind of just, it's all a bit of a blur at the moment. So I'm I'm actually trying to travel a little bit less for a few weeks. Are you going to stay home and cook? You stay home and cook, exactly. (laughs) You're a photographer and a storyteller. I've heard you use the term anti-war photographer. And I just brandished a quote at you that I'd scribbled on the back of this paper, which said, you're a photographer whose camera stays in the bag more than out. You spend a lot of time getting to know your subjects before you ever start to photograph them. So, I mean, there's, there's kind of a few strings coming from that, those questions. I mean, first off, I started out as a photographer. I used to be a fashion photographer. I used to work for Vogue and a lot of fashion magazines. And photography was my medium completely. And it was only when I started doing humanitarian work, the kind of stories I do now, 
that I realised I was a storyteller, not just a photographer. And it kind of sounds a bit pretentious, like I'm a storyteller, you know. But the point is... Not when you look at the pictures. Well, and also the point is, the difference is, I used to be, as a photographer, my job was to take photographs and to hand them over to somebody else. And I realised that I needed to do the actual telling of the story as well, because people trust me with their stories. Stories are the most important thing that we all own. And people in, in conflict zones, people go through terrible circumstances, they share their story with me in the hope that it will do something good. Can you tell us really briefly, and we're going to unpack this later on, mm. but about your organisation, the Legacy of War Project and the Foundation? Mm. So Legacy of War is, is kind of an umbrella name for, for my work for the last sort of six, seven years, because I'm interested in what happens after peace deals are done, after you know peace supposedly comes to a country, people still suffer, people still continue to either be injured physically in places like Laos, Vietnam. When often the world has stopped looking. Yeah, and it's just it's just people in their mind, you know, it's like, well, the war's over. Like, you take the Vietnam War, 126,000 people have been injured since the war by UXOs and landmines in that country. Agent Orange is still causing people to be born with terrible illnesses and, and cancers, and psychologically people are still suffering. So that war hasn't ended. So my work is really looking at what the consequences of war are. I mean, in World War One, roughly about 95% of all casualties were military, were soldiers. Now it's pretty much the flip of that. So now it's about 90% of casualties are civilians. I've never heard that. And yet we still report on conflicts as if they were like in the First World War, with the priorities still on the soldiers, on the men, on the military. And we don't really look at the other side of it. And I say that the, the, probably the, the biggest burden of conflict is, is laid with women. Um, that they have to deal with all the consequences of, of war. And yet we still tend to report on a male-dominated sort of soldiers and the conflict itself. So, so my work is looking both at the civilians, stories of women in conflict, and also the long-term impact. Let's just talk about the Article 22 connection. Mm-hmm. You met Elizabeth and Camille on April the 4th, which is Landmine Awareness Day, in 2017. You were at Kensington Palace with Prince Harry at an event to launch the Landmine Free 2025 campaign. Yeah. If I'm honest, I dislike all of those things and I always avoid them. I don't like landmine awareness days. I don't like all these goals and targets because, you know, but for it me... it does draw awareness to the problem that some people are asleep to, or...? Uh, does it? I don't know. I mean, I don't know. There's so many of these, these different days for different things. I mean, for me, I'm sure it has its use, but for me it's like 365 days a year I'm, I'm trying to raise awareness about it and trying to tell stories about it. And, and so I guess if there's a day for it, then, then fine. But there's a day for everything. If you look it up, actually, it's quite ridiculous. There's yeah. a day for everything. I have looked it up before. Well, I did a whole year where there's every day has a kind of food item. So it's like one day will be burger like day. aubergines. Yeah, burger day, aubergine day, whatever it is. So And then I based everything I was eating on whatever day it was, which is kind of fun, actually. So you do like marking days for certain things, but not when it comes to eating. gravitas. When it comes to eating. All right, but you were at this event. So I was at this event, and I think I'd just gone there because friends were being there. And yeah, that, that's kind of where I met them. I guess it's interesting, that fashion connection. You know, so we, we kind of spoke a common language, you could say. And so, yeah, I was interested. You know, Laos is a place that I've worked a lot and created a lot of images and stories from there. So I was keen to, to see if there was a way that we could then connect and kind of bring all those different elements. The work I do, I'm always trying to get the stories out of the norm. You know, the norm would be the sort of, you know, the Sunday newspapers, certain kind of publications that, that talk about these kind of issues. For me, that's always a sense of failure when my work appears in those places because the people tend to know what you're talking about. So I'm interested, I love it when my, my work appears in, well, at the moment I'm talking to Italian Vogue about a story. You know, I love that. That's the fashion bible for me. And they're going to do a story on South Sudanese refugees living in Uganda. But that's fantastic because you find a different angle and you're reaching a different audience. It's exactly what I try to do with this, mm. with this podcast. And I think there's an element. So I worked in the fashion world for 10 years, so I have a, lot of, a lot of my friends are from that world. And there's an element which is that you know, people almost feel they shouldn't get involved in these very serious issues and big issues because you know, my friends will say, and I'm, I'm putting, you know, using their words, but they're kind of go, well, I'm working in this frivolous world, I feel a bit stupid getting involved with it. I'm like, no, that's not how it should work. It's about finding partnerships and ways that we could all interconnect because we're all involved in this. And there's no such thing as, as something that's not relevant. So a lot of my talks, a lot of the events I do, I'm always trying to get people to use their skills to create change. You know, I was a fashion photographer, so the idea that I could use those skills to try and change the world in some way may have seemed crazy, but I found a way to use those skills to tell stories. We're going to get into that, but let's just talk briefly about 
the collaboration with Article mm. 22 because it also involves massive attack. Tell us about yeah, that. Yeah, so, um, so massive attack. I, I'm a Bristol boy, so that's where they're from. So I my, grew up with, well, I didn't grow up, but as a younger person, mm. that was my uh, record of choice. Yeah, absolutely. Because I was a that top was, raver. Yeah, that was my favourite album, still is. But again, I, was, I worked in the music industry, so I have a lot of friends in bands and musicians. And Rob, one of the main guys from Massive Attack, is a, is a very close friend. And we're always just trying to gain, finding ways to collaborate. And again, he'll be very upfront. He'll be like, you know, I'm a stupid pop star. What, what can I do? I mean, obviously... There's a film, um, we'll share a link, where he talks to you about that, that he's like, what can I do with this? What can I... What I love about the band is that they don't take themselves overly seriously. They take their music very seriously. They're incredibly passionate about what they do, but it's not a sort of sense of, therefore, we're better than anyone else. And so, you know, for me, I share stories of where I've been and we find things that we could do. And so this just was a perfect uh, excuse, really, to collaborate with him on something where, again, I, you know, I wouldn't have thought about asking Rob to do a bit of jewellery with Massive Attack Associated to raise funds for a project in, in Laos. But as I say, Article 22, all those bits suddenly connect. There's a story as part of that collaboration with a Mrs. Munn from Laos. She, mm. And she was living in a village where she'd been born, it was called Numan. Yeah. How do you say that? I've no idea. Hmm? I'm dyslexic. I'm terrible with words. I, that's why I'm a photographer. I take photographs. I'm terrible. Well, I'm having a stab. I think it's called Numan. Uh, we'll, we'll go with that. Um, but yeah, she's, she's an amazing woman. I met her, I must be about six or seven years ago now. And the thing for me is, is about trying to find that legacy of conflict and how it affects people long after wars. And uh, Mrs. Mum was a perfect example of somebody. She was born... 40-odd years ago, but basically the year the war ended in Vietnam. <laughs> the war never ended in Laos because officially there was no war. But when a the war, secret war. A secret war. But when the war ended in Vietnam was the year that she was born. The village she was born in is probably the most heavily bombed place in the world in the history of conflict. So in a square kilometre, one million cluster munitions have landed in that area over sort of a 20-year period. And that is from the official US figures. That's not conspiracy or anything like that. That's when finally they, the Clinton released the figures from the US Army and the US Air Force, and that was the figures for that village. Now, roughly, these little cluster munitions, if you imagine it's a big bomb full of all these tiny little munitions that are sort of the size of a cricket ball, and they go everywhere. Roughly a third don't explode on contact. So if you've got a million dropped in a square kilometre in a village, you have probably about 300,000 unexploded bomblets um, the size of a cricket ball spread across paddy fields, woodlands, forests, everything. Talked so, about this with Elizabeth, the kind of shocking, weird problem of calling them bombies and bomblets. Mm. It sounds so friendly. Well, actually, and then just finish off with, with Mrs. Munn's story. But before I do that, the, yeah, the great irony, there's there's a, a game called Boule. And Boule is this French, you know, game where you, where you throw tonk. a tiny ball, batonk. And it was very popular there because it had been a French colony. So kids play it. And actually, if you look at a bomblet, it's exactly the same size as a bull and looks very, very similar metal. So a lot of kids pick them up thinking it's that and take it to school and throw it thinking it's the game and then they explode. So there's a, there's a real irony of, I mean, if you put the two together, you can't tell the difference. They're these metal balls exactly the same size as the bull. But Mrs. Munn, as I say, so she was born the year the war ended. So she should have been brought up in peace. She was injured twice as a child because of these small cluster munitions going off. Um, luckily, they weren't serious injuries. But really, her whole life was, was dominated by this legacy. And then a few years ago, she was out in the paddy fields with her brother and her daughter. And the last thing she remembers is her brother saying, watch out, bomblet. Uh, when she woke up, her brother was dead and her child was dead. And she can't go out and work in the, the paddy fields anymore. She said to me, every time she goes out, she still sees their dead bodies in her mind. So she's unable so to many. work and, 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 yeah, and she's lost her child. But there are so many families. We met some when we went to Laos to record the other half of this show. Um, so many families, almost to the point where every family has a story like this. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that, that's, that is the legacy of, of that country. I just want to stick on the context of this for a moment because I bet that there are many listeners who just aren't aware of these stories. We talked about this war being called the Secret War and if you listen to the other episode, we unpack that. But... I feel like maybe people think that landmines, and I should say we're not talking about landmines in the Lao context, but I think people think that that was a thing of the past, that we've got over it. Maybe if you don't know about this issue or deeply know, what comes to mind is Princess Di in that picture in Angola. Mm -hmm. And you think, oh, we fixed it. 
I just want to share a bit of context for those who think that. Um, the background is that in 1997, 122 countries came together to sign the Mine Ban Treaty, and 42 more countries joined after that. And that led to 30 countries being declared landmine-free, but the world is not landmine-free. And here's the shocker, which I had not known until I started to research this. According to landmine-free2025.org, and we'll share a link, global deaths and injuries from landmines hit a 10-year high in 2015, and that was an increase of 75% of those recorded the previous year. Landmines is an interesting thing. I mean, you know, again, just to defy the, the things we're talking about. So landmines are a manufactured device used by the military that goes under the ground. When you step on it, it's triggered. It can be triggered by a tank, so they need a heavier weight, or it can be an anti-personnel mine, which means it can be triggered by a foot. So even a child stepping on it will trigger it. So that's one weapon that we're talking about. That was tended to be used by, by state players, by countries, and in big conflicts. Normally it's a defensive policy, so along borders. For example, the US still uses the them in Korea, uh, the biggest minefield in the world, is the, I don't know what you call it, the, the DMC between um, North and South Korea. So that's what you know, traditionally mines were used for. Um, I should just say that recent news has just broken that now, apparently, according to a leaked memo, state internal memo from the Trump administration, won't just be Korea. They're going to be lifting the, rescinding the verbal restrictions, because as you pointed out, they didn't sign the treaty anyway, yeah. on, um, on using the mouseware. It's well, yeah, I mean, right? but, well, I mean, as I say, the US policy has changed slightly with Trump. Um, he has relaxed their use. But as I say, it's important to remember that the US was one of the very few countries that didn't sign the landmine treaty. So they have always been priors in this. So it doesn't matter whether it was Obama, Clinton, presidents before, none of them signed this because they were still using these weapons in Korea. So that's one side. Then something else that sort of developed recently, which is IEDs, which is improvised explosive devices. It's a kind of funny detail because essentially they're exactly the same thing. It's a device that when you step on it, it's triggered and explodes. They can be triggered by remote devices and other things, but essentially what an IED is, is a homemade landmine. So traditionally they have been used by what would be seen as, as terrorist organizations and sort of non-state players. But having said that, things have changed hugely in the Middle East. So if you look at um, ISIS and what they were doing in places like Mosul and northern Iraq, they were producing hundreds of thousands of these devices. They were using factories. I mean, I visited a place that had been a factory making plastic things for kitchens. They'd repurposed that to make these IEDs. Wow. So you can't really call them IEDs anymore. They pretty much become landmines uh, because they're manufactured. They're there in the thousands. So what's happening now is you have got non-state players, i.e. not countries, producing very high levels of, of landmines. You've also got situations like in Libya. Libya had stockpiles of these weapons. With the fall of Gaddafi, there was no control on what was happening. So people were literally just going into these sort of arms storage places and just taking away landmines and using them themselves. So their use has really changed. So while it's fantastic to see a lot of the major countries not using them anymore, there are a lot of other people using them, using them in different ways. And then the final element to this kind of whole terrible jigsaw puzzle is UXO, which is unexploded ordnance. And that's the big problem in Laos and in Vietnam and in many countries like uh, Iraq at the moment and Syria. And essentially that is a, a bomb, a missile, other some kind of armed weapon that hasn't exploded in use. And as I was saying in, in Laos, they reckon about 30% of the ordnance drop there did not explode as was intended. What that means is you end up with a bomblet, a missile, a huge bombs, I mean 2,000 pound bombs, unexploded, just lying there. Now people, I think, would be shocked at how these things just lie around. When I'm visiting Laos, I've been out with, with demining groups, people like uh, Mines Advisory Group, MAG, and you'll go into a field and you will see these bomblets just sitting on the ground. You know, they haven't just disappeared underground, they haven't got lost or rusted away. They are sitting there like they were the day that they were dropped. Still as dangerous. And you got to remember something like a, a, these bomblets, they're purposely filled with shrapnel. The whole point of an anti-personnel bombs is to injure as many people as possible. Not to kill, you want to injure. So they're designed like that. Kids pick them up, kids play with them. So those, again, are thousands and thousands and thousands of those all around the world. And we're dropping them every day still. 
So, of course, that problem just continues. When you hear goals like landmine-free by 2025, what do you think? You know, I'm not a huge fan of, of these kind of goals. A lot of it is to, to encourage donors so that people feel there is an end game to it. And, of course, it's great to see some countries, places like Mozambique, um, that are, have become now landmine-free. But as I say, these tend to be the weapons that were used yeah. by governments in a very different context to what is happening now. My, my fear is that, yes, that is great, and that the kind of the scenes of, as you mentioned, Lady Diana, obviously Prince Harry has kind of followed on that legacy in Angola, and I hope that they, well, they should be able to, and it'd be great where they do clear those landmines. But I think maybe it takes away the attention from the fact that we are creating further problems by dropping more and more bombs in other countries. So It's unspoken of. Well, broadly. exactly, and, and, you know, that, that legacy, again, it's terrible for me to go from a place like Vietnam where I'm interviewing people who have lost children, people who have been injured, maimed, lost eyesight, and I fly from there, this was last year, and I flew straight from there into Iraq, and I'm meeting kids that go through it, but also knowing that places like Mosul, which is probably the most heavily bombed place in the world at the moment, they will have that legacy still like Vietnam 40 years from now, and there'll still be children getting injured 40 years from now. And, and to me, that is just, it's something that, yeah, we have to talk about and remind people there's no such thing as a clean war. You know, we, we use phrases now like smart bombs. I was thinking before about even that phrase anti-personnel. Mm. These clinical wordings and phrasings for these yeah. despicable acts of violence that are endorsed because politically endorsed, it takes the emotion out of it, which I suppose is the point, but let's actually think about what those things mean. Yeah, and without question, that the most common injury I see in working in Afghanistan, in Syria, Vietnam, with children, is they've lost hands. Why have they lost hands? Because they pick these things up. They think they're toys. Some of them are designed even to look like toys, you know? There's some that almost mimic toys. There was one in, in Afghanistan that the Russians dropped a lot that is designed, butterflies, designed to look like a toy. And when you pick it up and play with it, it blows up. Bastards. Hmm. We're going to talk about hope, but I want to stick on your story, if you don't mind, Giles. Um, in 2012, you gave a TED Talk sharing your story, and we'll share a link. I warn you, tissues are required. I mean, it's an incredible story. But you start with jokes. You can use humour to make this terrible story and topic accessible, and I think your humanity and ability to cut through is just absolutely phenomenal and I just feel so lucky that we've got to have you here on the on the podcast. I want to ask you, if I can, to tell that story um, in 2011. You, as you say, is the title of the TED Talk, The Reporter Becomes a Story. Yeah, I mean, actually, I hated that title. They, they gave it that title and I didn't really like it because I never thought about it as becoming the story. Um, I don't really like comparing my story when, when I'm talking about my work because my story is very different. I was yeah. there by choice. You know, I was there doing my job and I would say I had a really bad day at the office. Um, <laughs> you know, what happened is I was out on patrol with a group of American soldiers and I stepped on an IED, so an improvised explosive device, which, as we were saying, is very much like a landmine. It operates exactly the same way. Yeah, I stepped on it, triggered it. We were on foot patrol, so luckily nobody was that close to me, so only I was injured. In fact, I think it's, it will be nine years tomorrow that it happened. I thought those were going to be the last moments of my life. I didn't lose my, my consciousness. I was thrown in the air, landed. I could see my legs had gone. My arm was kind of mangled and on fire. And my other hand was pretty badly smashed. And yeah, I just thought I've seen people with far less injuries succumb to those injuries pretty quickly. So I just thought they would be the last moments of, of my life. I remember it was a beautiful spring morning. It was a beautiful blue sky. I could hear birds singing. But luckily, yeah, it, was, it wasn't my day to die. I remember thinking I'd just I could maybe make it for five minutes, just keep going for five minutes, and then you get through that five minutes, and the next five minutes. And then the medevac crew came and picked me up. Uh, Phil and CJ were the two medics on the back of the helicopter, keeping me alive. It was about a 25-minute journey back to Kandahar. And the chief there, he said to me, I think I'm one of the very few that were still conscious at the point of surgery. Um, and the chief there asked me, what the hell did you have for breakfast? And I said, uh, five cigarettes and three coffees. He was like, well, that's <laughs> breakfast of champions. Joking. Yeah, you know, actually, it's a really funny thing. I think I've ever told anyone this. There was a nurse wrote to me, a nurse called Dana. And um, she wrote to me because she was a bit taken aback because she said all the other injuries had come in, everyone was unconscious. And she said, you came in. And I don't remember this by this stage, I was, I was gone. And she said, you came in 
and it threw her because she could see me. You know, I was, I, I was kind of looking at her and speaking. And she said, I had to put this really, really big kind of needle in your arm. And I knew how painful it would be and, and so uncomfortable. She said, but you just looked at me and smiled. And so you made me feel all right about what I was doing. So it's amazing, really, that that impact of, of the whole thing, how it ripples through other people. You told The Observer that one of your early thoughts was, thank goodness, or at least or I'm lucky even, that my right arm is still here and I'll be able to still take pictures. Yeah, I mean, for me, you know... Um, well, was it a question you asked? I mean, you were thinking, can I work? Can I take pictures? Well, it's not about working. It was just about that that's, photography is my language. You know, I'm dyslexic. I was always told I was stupid at school. I never went to university or anything. So when I got given a camera, I'm a verbal communicator. You know, all the way I talk and interact with people is is through watching them. I'm quite happy to be around people and not speak the same language. I don't have a problem with that. A slight aside, there's this amazing restaurant in Milan. And I discovered it once because I, I'd flown in there to do a shoot. It was late at night. My hotel didn't have any food. I went looking for somewhere. I found this little, little kind of... Uh, local restaurant we walked in said you know i was trying to make a signs of you know food etc etc and, <laughs> and they were like no food anymore and it was too late and i thought well there's no going to be nowhere else i can find anyway i was so hungry i thought the only way i could do is have a couple of drinks and then go to bed and just kind of deal with it that way so i had a couple of drinks they turned into a few more drinks the kind of bar shut they had a guy playing the piano <laughs> we were all doing shots it got quite messy and at probably about three o'clock in the morning i decided i was just going to help myself in the kitchen and cook something did now, you honestly do that? Yeah. No speaking Italian, just go in there. Well, I just went in there. I mean, I didn't ask anyone. I mean, I just went, went in and started cooking. And it's, it's one of my favourite recipes, which is very simple. It's just black pepper and cheese. But it's like one of the simplest and hardest things to make really good. So when, when the owner came in and saw me, he started shouting, and then he tasted the food, loved it, and asked me to do it for everyone in the bar. So I cooked for Ooh. everyone. <laughs> yeah, and so we, we sat and we ate. And so that's always been the place I always pop in whenever I'm in Milan. I go to this restaurant. And about six months ago, I went back there. It was the first time I took some other friends. I'd been over there actually doing something with Italian Vogue. So I took a couple of people from Italian Vogue, and we went in there. And my friend was actually filming. And I said, you, you, wait, you see, you know, this is like my home. And they were like, how do you know about this place? It's, like, it's my second home. And I had this lovely bit of video of the owner seeing me coming over. And honestly, it's, it's on my Instagram. And you just see his face, and he kind of kisses me on the cheeks. He's holding me. He's, he's almost crying, and it's, it's this beautiful, beautiful scene. So my friend filmed it, and they were all going, that's amazing, you two. We sat down, we're eating. And it was only then one of them said, he doesn't speak any English. And I went, I suppose not. But and they said, you don't speak any Italian. I said, no. And I have not even thought about that. Because your languages point. of communication are also food. So I mentioned before mm. that you have you know, going to take some time off and cook. Yeah. When you said that you wanted to stay at home for a while, you also have an Instagram account called The One-Armed Chef, which is just full of wonderful stories of cooking, pictures of food, but also, and the bit that I like, connections through food. Mm -hmm. Because often when you meet the people that you photograph, you cook with them or you eat them. There's one where it said, first time someone's baked me a birthday cake for a while. Yeah. No, I mean, but and food that's... food can be that connector, absolutely. right? That cuts... So I would say I'm a completely a visual communicator, but that gets back to the point. So I've been told my whole life I was stupid. And then when I got a camera, I could suddenly talk. And so when I was thinking about whether I could still take photographs, it wasn't about whether I could work. It was about whether I could still speak. That's what it was for me. So it wasn't a case of, can I still work as a photographer? It was simply, for me, if I hadn't been able to take photographs after I got injured, that would have been me losing my ability to communicate with the world. So that's really what it meant. I mean, another great example of what you're saying is they flew me back. So I was unconscious. You know, obviously in you surgery. Spent 46 days in intensive care. Yeah. Um, I mean, I heard but, you say that you've been studied for being the person who could go through that. It was a very long time. A... But, but before that, even, they flew me back to the UK where I spent, as you said, 46 days in intensive care. But when I arrived back in the UK, they, they took me straight into surgery. Obviously, my family, my sister was there, my brother. And they had been told I wouldn't make it through the next three days because of the internal injuries, et cetera, et cetera. And as they were weaning me past, my sister said, he's trying to say something. And they said, no, he's unconscious, you know, and then, well, you don't know my brother. And they turned around, they could see I was kind of mumbling. Again, I don't remember any of this because I was fully unconscious. But they, they stopped and sort of took the mask off so I could say something or utter something. And of course, my sister thought these were my last words, and they really should have been my last words. And bless her, probably thought I was going to say, I love you, or I'm sorry, or I don't know, whatever. And apparently the only words that came out were I just whispered to my sister, I'm still a photographer. 
And that's what I would say. It's like if you're an artist, if you're a creative, it's your core. It's not about a job or work or anything. It's who we are. And so for me, my core is being a photographer. That is who I am. And yet there was a time when you gave it up as a professional pathway. So you're, let's talk about fashion and photography. <laughs> you work for Vogue. You've photographed musicians, Marilyn Manson and the prodigy and fashion and celebrity and all the rest of it. But I've heard you talk, actually I've read interviews with you, I'm not sure where I got this from, obviously I stalk you in my research process, but you know, you talk about feeling that, that you needed something more, that you where were, you know, you know wanted something else, and then you actually went and did care work. Yeah, I mean, I would say, at that stage, when I gave up photography, I didn't know that I wanted something more, I just right. knew that photography didn't give me enough. Were you sort and of I didn't like the industry. by fashion? No, I, I just didn't like the way that the industry worked. Um, in what way? The way that women were used in the industry. So especially, you know, if I was working for maybe more of the, the male side of magazines, like, but, you know, the, the high-end magazines like GQ and Arenas, Squires, etc. I didn't like the way that, you know, if you had a, and it's still the same, but, you know, you have a David Beckham, a famous man, they'll be in their suits, and a famous woman, Kate Winslet, will be in her underwear, even if she just won an Oscar. And I was doing a shoot not far from here. <laughs> That's actually still true. Yeah, no, like, it is I think still- we've so changed and um, recently had the good fortune to interview Tarana Burke about me too. But actually, if you look at fashion, no, same I mean, old story, right? No, it's the same thing. And it, it, what's, I think, even more insidious is it's sort of been twisted into it's a female empowerment for a woman to be in her underwear in a magazine and because now that woman's empowered to be that way. Did it make you feel uncomfortable then, that sort of side of it? No, it disgusted me. So really? I, that, That's what I'm saying. So I walked away. So there was a shoot at the Charlotte Street Hotel not far from where we are now in, in central London. And there was a, a shoot going on. There was a young actress, and basically she was supposed to be half dressed in, in bed. We were doing this sort of sexy shoot, and her agent was there, the editor of the magazine, and she didn't want to do it quite that way. And even her own agent was basically telling her she had to do it this way. And the magazine was saying, "Well, we won't bother doing it otherwise," you know, because she was a nobody. So why why do it? And she was in tears. So I said, "That's it," and I gave up photography that day. I mean, obviously, it wasn't just that one event. It was. Months of it, I, I was married at the time and my wife was a model, so I saw how the industry treated her, which probably was the, the really personal element that had got to me. And so the rock and roll story actually is that I threw all my cameras out the window of the Charlotte Street Hotel. Um, I actually didn't know that. I'm yeah. grinning because there's something kind of delicious about that, isn't there? Yeah, well, it's supposed to, so yeah, it's supposed <laughs> to be... Rockstar like, tension. Well, it was supposed to be, I said, that's it, fuck it, and threw all my cameras out the window. Actually, what happened is I threw them on the bed. It's just unfortunately they bounced off the bed and out the window. So. Didn't mean to throw them out the window. Yeah, so they did. They let, they flew out the window, um, but it was actually just I was having a little hissy fit, throwing them on the bed. But unfortunately, they, it became a bit more dramatic than that. Yeah. But I so I walked away from photography simply, or should I say, I walked away from, away from the photography industry. Yeah. Um, because I just didn't really know what I was doing anymore. I didn't. I was like, this is not why I became a photographer to see a girl sat on a bed crying because of the picture I'm about to take of her. You know, there's, there's like a, a famous story about Kate Moss. You know, Kate Moss was, what, 15 or something when, when she was first photographed? Corinne Day, though. Topless, yeah, Corinne Day. And it was, it's still used as a kind of, like an amazing story about how that she didn't want to take a top off that day. She was persuaded to do it by Corinne Day. Then, then she did it, and then, wow, that launched her career and amazing. I still look at that and go, that was a 15-year-old girl. She's a kid on a beach, and I do, and that girl. headdress, isn't she, yeah, as but she well? But yeah. she originally said, I don't want to take it my top off. Well, and the British Vogue one will share some links. Yeah, if but it was that ID them. one. With the light bulbs around her. But that's the industry where that's still almost like a glorified story of how she was persuaded to do it. I'm like, it's a 15-year-old girl that said she didn't want to do it. You persuaded her to do it. That's not right. So it's a screwed-up industry, and, you know, I just... That was it for me. I didn't know what, you know, I was only 18 when I started taking photographs. I was 19 when I was already working. You know, it happened really quickly. I'd not really found my own voice or what I was trying to do with photography. You admired Avedon. Yeah, you no, admired I admired mean, the yeah. war photographer Don. Don McCullen. Don McCullen, yeah. Those, you know, some of the reasons I took up photography. But, you know, fashion was a great, and I loved it. And, you know, the music world I loved, you know, being on the road with bands like Oasis and, and stuff like that was really cool. But I think, you know, I was 28 and I just was like, actually, this is not what I want my life to be. I don't want to be working in this world anymore. It's not right for me. So I gave it all up. I just didn't know what I was going to do. Got a job in a bar. Was probably drinking myself to death at that stage. Suffering from depression. You know, it was in my own world. My marriage ended because I couldn't cope with that. And and really was in a very dark place. You know, I've always suffered my whole life from from depression and, and issues of, of self-worth and all those things. That really was, you know, again, accentuated by that. And then at that lowest point, I started randomly doing just one day a week care work for somebody, a young 
man called Nick who had autism, uh, but his autism was, was very severe, so he couldn't be on his own. He used to self-harm a lot. And his family just said, would you come in to do one day a week just to keep him company? And before long, that had become basically my full-time job. And I was his live-in carer. And I did that for two years. And I think, you know, a lot of people kind of confused. You've given up the world of fashion. You know, one minute you're hanging out with Mariah Carey and Lenny Kravitz, the next you're doing care work, which I think a lot of people would look down on. But I said, you know, for the first time in my life, I was happy because I could see the direct and positive impact I had on somebody else's life. It was really that simple. And I'd spent, you know, my 10 years previous to that living superficially the greatest life you could imagine. You know, I'm traveling around the world. I'm earning stupid money. I'm hanging out with rock stars, married to a model. My God, everyone's life looking. That's the coolest life you could possibly have. You, you know, you're a lucky bastard. Wow. But being unhappy every day. I remember doing a massive shoot with Christian Bale for Disney, getting paid thousands and sitting in my hotel room crying and thinking, well, why am I not happy? So now I could see I was doing something and I could see the impact it was having on somebody else and I was happy. And then partly through that as well, we, we started thinking, well, maybe it would be a good way for Nick to tell his story would be if I photographed his daily life because he was very descriptive, but we, his autism also held him back from explaining to people what was going through his life and what he was up to. But through photography, in working with him, we could put together a series of pictures and we used those to help him get the support that he needed. And I guess that's the eureka moment where I said, I thought, well, I could put my, my passion, my language of photography, but use it to be an advocate for other people. I hate the expression that gets used a lot where people say, oh, you give voice to people. I'm like, I don't give voice to anyone. They have voices. But I have a really amazing tool and that is a great amplifier of their voices. And that's my camera. So what I do is I use my camera to amplify the voices of people who feel they're unheard. An exhibition of yours that happened at the Old Truman Brewery, which I only saw uh, remotely, I wasn't there, but I've seen the pictures. To me, I love those pictures so much because they're so powerful. They're stories of refugees from, I mean, everywhere, right? Stories of the the current refugee crisis gripping the world. But there's a woman there who's 90. What's her name? She comes Uh, from... Oh, Shamar. Right. Mm. Um, And does she come from Aleppo or Mosul? I can't remember. Anyway, I can see her. Yeah. Just this wonderful face. There's so much... There's so much in those faces and those expressions, aren't there? Yeah, I mean... Tell us us about how you then moved or tell us about the experience of then working with the UN and documenting refugees and telling their stories. I mean, at at my heart, I'm a portrait photographer. That's what I've always been. I love people. I'm fascinated by people. And photography is like a, a passport in other people's lives. So it was great when you're 18, you're on the road with Oasis. You know, why am I there? Because of my camera. When I started doing the humanitarian work, it was the same opportunity that this this device, this camera, was a passport into other people's lives. They would share their lives with me. And that gives me the opportunity then to get to know them and then hopefully, because they've trusted me with their story, do something with it. So my pictures tend to be very simple. Um, I do a lot of portraits against a white background. I, I think that's one of the ones. You talk about that kind of stripping back the complexity yeah. of having fuzzy backgrounds or even colour. But also, also it's about a certain respect because, you know, I realised quite early on that you know, I would be meeting families and, and as I said, a lot of my work is focused on, on women and they're living in a, a tent in, in Iraq as refugees and, and they're embarrassed about where they live. You know, they're ashamed of the situation they're in. They're, they're proud mothers. You know, they, they're proud of the homes that they had. And to be photographed in that situation is, is very upsetting for them, understandably. It's fine, you know, they understand it's documentary and it's important we do it. But when I say, look, I'm going to put this white sheet behind you, it's taking them away out of that context. And it's interesting how people respond to that because it's sort of, it's amazing how by, by photographing them in that way and not with their context, you really are focusing on them as people, not saying, look at this person as a refugee because they're obviously in a tent. Mm. I think the, the photograph you're referring to is a woman called Shamar. And Shamar is in her 80s. She's from Homs. And she was living in a in a like a Bedouin camp just outside Zathri refugee camp in Jordan. They didn't want to live in the refugee camp because they'd already been nomadic people. They didn't want to be confined. But it, what it meant is that they weren't getting the support from a lot of the aid agencies because they weren't officially in the camp. So this situation was actually very desperate. There was probably about a dozen families there, um, so maybe 100 people. And when I turned up, somebody had told me about this place, I got out of the car and Shamar came over and she's the kind of matriarch of the community. 
And she was shaking her finger at me. And she was basically saying, we don't want a photographer here. We want help. We don't want somebody taking a picture when we're in this situation. We want help. And she was really angry at me being there. And I just said, look, can I just visit? Just let me, let me be here. So she kind of walked away. And I spent the rest of the week, as I normally do, and you mentioned that quote about not taking my camera at the back, and, and I never do. I, I spend time listening to people. You know, it's my, my biggest advice to any young journalist or photographer is learn to listen. And so I spent the week there cooking with families, which I love to do. And I never spoke to Shamar. I mean, occasionally I'd see her out the corner of my eye, but we never spoke. And after about a week, I was ready to start doing portraits. So I had my white sheet, this bed sheet, and we, we stuck it up, and getting ready. And I turned around to load my camera. And I was thinking about who should I photograph first? Who should I ask first? And when I turned back, Shamar was stood in front of the sheet. Now, I never asked to take her portrait. She decided. And that's what I always say is like, we use the phrase to take a photograph. I was going to say, is there something? But I always say the best photographs are not taken, they're given. And Shamar was giving me her portrait. And so, yeah, that, that photograph means a great deal to me because it was a gift. And that's what photography should be. It, it's a story is the most precious thing we have. Taking somebody's photograph is a very personal thing. And you sometimes have to earn people's trust. And that was, as I say, a great example of a woman that quite rightly was, was shaking her fingers at me saying, we don't want you here without any conversation. But her watching the way that I work over a week, you know, she gave me that respect. And, and that was her gift to me was to allow her to do her portrait. I didn't know that story, but I loved yeah. that picture. But I was thinking while you were speaking about this whole idea that we have of the taking mm. of the photograph and almost that it's intrusive, especially when you're talking about war photography, for example. Are you preying on, on someone's terrible circumstance or um, somehow robbing them of a moment that they didn't choose to give you? But you're telling the opposite story there. Yeah, and I think it's... it's um, I should just say one last thing about Shamar. is a great universal truth, which she, she cracked me up because she has these... Um, like Bedouin tattoos, so it's like a little moon and a star and things on her face. And sort of typically I <laughs> did a thing of saying, you know, can you explain to me what they mean? And she just looked at me and she said, oh, you were young and stupid. <laughs> and I just cracked up and I said, oh, I've got a few of those, Shamar. And I was like showing my tattoos. <laughs> what like, have you got? I can see well, it. Well, I've got, I've got, got all sorts a, of things. A, what is it, a griffin? Um, no, that's a phoenix. Phoenix, raised from the flames. You well, know. that's not young and stupid. What have you got that's young and stupid? Um, oh, Tell all the sorts truth. Of things, all sorts of things. <laughs> the, the, I know, the, the funny... No, the, but have you got Mickey Mouse on your ankle? From no, I've got, I've, got nothing, I've got nothing bad like that, but... <laughs> you got, I love Liam and Noel on your bum. <laughs> no, most definitely not. <laughs> if you want a tattoo story, it would be about um, Phil and CJ were the two medics that saved me on a, on the helicopter. And I was fully conscious during that, that journey. And we were talking and, and I said, if I make it, I'm going to take you guys out for a drink. So 18 months after that, I was well enough. I was in hospital for a year. I had 37 operations that first year. But I left hospital exactly a day from the day I got injured because I said I'm going to have all my operations done with it. I had to call up surgeons to persuade one of them to do the last operation. You wanted it to be finished within that year? Yeah, because they, everyone told me this is going to take years, and I said, no, we'll do this within a year. And the 37th operation was a colostomy reversal, so I had a colostomy bag for the first year. And because that wasn't essential, they said, look, your body's gone through way too much. You can't have another major operation if it's not vital. You know, all the ones you've had have been important. And I said, no, this is important for me. I said, I'm going to have it all done within a year, then I'm never going to have any more surgeries. And everyone said, no. So surgeons have one great weakness, which is their vanity. So I started ringing up surgeons and I actually got the Queen's surgeon, rang him up. And I said, I've been told nobody can do this. And he's like, well, I damn well can. Right. So he agreed to do it. And it was done a year to the day that I got injured. And I've never seen a surgeon since. I've never had an appointment about anything since that point. That was eight years ago. But getting back to the story about so Phil and CJ, I had told them I would take them out for a drink one day. So 18 months after I got injured, I was well enough. I went to Chicago. I was just learning to walk again on these prosthetic legs. I listen to you, Charles, and I think, how does anyone have the mental strength to keep pushing through this and then say... I'm going to Chicago now. Oh, it is what it is. You just get on with it. So, I mean, for me, it's, it's just one of those things. It's not, a, it's not about mental strength. It's about you don't have a choice. You just get on with life. So anyway, I went to Chicago. I met up with Phil and CJ. And just before meeting them, I got a bit nervous because, you know, they're soldiers in the 101st Airborne, elite troops. They were medics, but they were still within that, you know, military unit. And I'm a, you know, a photographer that campaigns against war. And I'm like, God, you know, this could be really awkward when we actually, when we, you know, I'm like the first time we met. 
I think we got on, but it was kind of hectic that day. A lot of other stuff. We, we've been chatting. <laughs> Hard on, to say. We've been chatting on Facebook, and so it felt like a blind date. I'm like, I think they like me, but I hope, I hope they like me when they see me. Um, and so, like any blind date, I had a kind of couple of whiskeys just to settle the nerves, get myself in a, in a level place. And I turn up at the bar. It's about midday, and it turns out they'd been really nervous, which is kind of funny as well. They saw me. They burst into tears. We were hugging, crying. We had a whiskey. We had a tequila chaser with the whiskey. We hugged. We cried. We talked. We had a whiskey. And that went on for about eight hours. <laughs> What's the tattoo? And I've been, I've, I've, you know, had some nights where I've been out drinking and this was way up there. I mean, we were by the end, it was one action. We were going to do whiskey, tequila, hugging, crying all at the same time. And so then we did the obvious thing when you're that drunk, which is let's find a tattoo parlor. And Phil and CJ wanted to get the date that they rescued me. So we'd all have it. And these guys have got quite a few tattoos anyway. And I was really kind of touched by that because I'm like, they were medics that were saving hundreds of lives. Why they would want my date, you know, why that was so significant to them, I didn't really understand. But I was like, fine, let's do it. So we, we downtown Chicago, we found this, this glass-fronted tattoo parlor. We get in there. I'm really struggling because I just learned to use prosthetic legs. I'm really drunk. But I'm probably walking better than Phil and CJ. They were stumbling <laughs> into each other. The tattooist was like, guys, you're too drunk to get tattoos. But I say, Phil and CJ are two big guys from the 101st Airborne. They're like, buddy, we're getting these tattoos today. So I go first. And this is where the shit really starts to happen because they had um, like those office chairs with wheels. And so office chairs with wheels are like kryptonite to legless people. They're like my nemesis. Because when you try and sit in them, you don't have the support and they kind of scoot out of the way. So the inevitable happens that the chair kind of flips out from underneath me. I land on the floor. One of my prosthetic legs comes off. I'm trying to get back up up in the chair. And I'm just learning to use prosthetic legs. So I didn't even know how to try and do that. So I'm trying to get up on the chair. My other prosthetic leg comes off. So now you've got this guy with no legs just pushing a chair around in circles. Um, Phil and CJ just think it's the funniest thing they've ever seen. So they're just pissing themselves laughing. The tattooist kind of backed off into his office in the corner. He was really uncomfortable about the whole situation. And then this woman walks by. And as I said, it's this glass-fronted tattoo parlor in downtown Chicago. And she just sees a guy with no legs pushing a chair in circles and two grown men pointing and laughing. So she's really upset. And bless her, she walks in and she's only small. I remember she was really quite tiny. And she walks up to these two huge soldiers, Phil and CJ, the medics that saved my life. And she looks at them, points at me, and she says, look, this man evidently needs some help. And without batting an <laughs> eyelid, Phil and CJ, in unison, they looked at her and they said, ma'am, we helped him once. We're not helping him again. Oh, my God. I can't. I'm just... Wow. So, and then the funny thing, the really funny thing, I'm, oh. not sure if, I'm not sure if I've even told people this. I can't. But, but the really funny thing is I woke up the next day and we got the tattoos in the end. And I woke up the next day and realized we got the date wrong. We were so drunk. So it's actually... The, no. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's a day off. So actually I have a random date. No. <laughs> <laughs> you like those backpackers that go, oh, yes, I'll get the Asian symbol for pride, and then it reads goat. Yeah, so oh, I have God. a random date on my shoulder. <laughs> Giles Dooley, you are the greatest podcast guest I've ever, <laughs> ever had, and I warned that there would be jokes. Yes. Well, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, it's like what happened to me. You were asking earlier about how, how you... You know, well, I, I had a Chicago, serious question. I, I had a serious question about human resilience mm. because often your photographs encapsulate a fierce resilience in the human spirit that has allowed people to come through extraordinarily difficult circumstances in their own lives. But you seem to me to embody that in a way that is gobsmacking. Where does it come from? But also, how do you get through it? Not just your experience, but those of the people that you photograph. Is it humor? Is it? Is there's, it? I mean, there's a, what there's, is it? Well, there's a lot of things to say to that. First is I always find resilience is a really interesting word because it is the one attribute that you really hope nobody ever finds out they have because resilience by its nature is born of suffering. So anybody I meet that's called resilient, I feel terrible because I know that they've suffered. You only get resilience through suffering and the greater your suffering, the greater your resilience at the end of it. So, you know, when I'm like, for example, I can think of a story in, in DR Congo of women that have gone through terrible sexual violence and, and doing their portraits. And they were some incredibly resilient women. But that resilience was born from something so terrible. So, so the hideous, only way to survive. That you just wouldn't... It's an attribute you never want to find out you have and you never want anybody you love to find out they have it. So it's, it's a very weird word. and I have kind of strange feelings about it. But at the same time, in terms of my own experience, I still think I'm a very lucky person because I meet people every day who are injured like me. There was a guy in, in Cambodia... I met a couple of years ago. He'd been injured as a child by a landmine, 
much as the same sort of situation, same sort of time as, as the bombing of, of Laos. And he'd been injured, lost both his legs. And without going into details, it's much more complicated if you lose a knee as well, if it's above the knee. It makes it much, much harder to walk. So he'd lost his above the knee. And so although he'd been given some basic prosthetics, he'd never really been taught how to use them, couldn't do anything. And he's now in his I, I, probably late 50s. And I'd met him at a rehab centre, but he, the next day I went to visit him at, at his home. Um, his wife had died long before. He'd been really left destitute. He'd never been able to work. And so he lived with his sister. His sister was a lovely woman, but she was very poor. She had her own family. So eventually he showed me the side of this, this basic sort of you know, shack where they lived. And on the side were the, the dog baskets. And he pointed at the biggest dog basket, and he was like, that's my bed. Now, this man, he was no different to me. I'm not more resilient. I'm not stronger than him. I'm not more worthy than him. He wants to work as much as I want to work. We were exactly the same. The only difference was opportunity. And he'd been denied the opportunity that I had. So, you know, I still think of myself as the luckiest person in the world because I got injured that badly, but I was able 18 months later to be back in Afghanistan, to be back working. You know, I've been in 19 countries the last 12 months. I live fully independently. My life is no different, really. You know, I, I would say the only disability I have is in the, in the eyes of others who see something that I don't see. There was something that you told Beatrix Ost, whose book you were in, and this was one of the things you told her. You said, I was very aware that inside I was the same person. What changes is people's perceptions of me. Mm. You don't change. I'm sure you do change. but No, but you don't. And, and so you're still you. Yeah, so that, that's, you know, um, as I say, it's other people's perceptions that change. And that, that's frustrating. But yeah, so I, it's hard for me to have any kind of sympathy for myself when, when I spend my life photographing people injured in similar ways who don't have the same opportunity. Are you happy? Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I'd say I'm less depressed. I mean, as I say, I've gone through some terrible depressions in my life. And again, that's one of the things people said to me, you know, how did you cope with what happened to you? I'm like, actually, fighting depression was a hell of a lot harder. You know, my years of depression in my late 20s and early 30s was a far darker, complicated period in my life than getting my legs blown off. That I could kind of deal with. Depression, really, really bad depression, is a much, much bigger battle. It was funny because I'd sort of gone through this, this very, very bad depression, sorted my life out. I'd lost everything because of that depression and was rebuilding my life when I got injured. And I remember almost like lying in bed and being told, you know, you've got no legs and you lost your arm and just kind of going, oh, bollocks. It's just like it's... <laughs> It just really was, in a sense, for me, it's like, oh, bollocks, it's really unfair when I finally got myself back on track that this has happened. And really, that was an obstacle and a frustration. And, of course, it's horrible every day. I'm in pain every day. It's, it's a struggle. It's a very know. serious thing. But I, mean, you are, I mean, that pain, right? Because you are still in pain all the time. Terrible pain. I mean, yeah. constantly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, really, really, you know, I call it toothache pain in my, in my arm, for example. And, and by toothache pain, I mean a pain that, that just nags and doesn't go away. But like I say, I mean, fighting depression was a much, much harder and different struggle. So, yeah, I mean, I'm kind of quite serious when I say I'm, I'm the luckiest man in the world. You know, I, I got to survive something I shouldn't have survived. I think at that stage, only 20 people in this country had survived a bomb blast losing three limbs. And they were 20 year old soldiers. So it was a miracle I survived. Nobody thought I'd walk again. Nobody thought I'd work again. And, you know, within 18 months, I was really back on track exactly as my life had been before. So, of course, I see myself as, as being very fortunate. I think we're very fortunate to get this opportunity to hear from you. I want to finish on cooking because some of this stuff is heavy, although most of it's actually funny. I mm -hmm. don't know how you manage um. it. I'll never get over your tattoo story. But I want to finish on cooking because often I finish these episodes by saying, what can we do and how can we get together to make change? And I know that you've got some ideas around that yourself you shared and I will share a link to it. An idea of, there's an interview where you talked about, we can't solve the crisis in Syria, but anyone can bake a cake for a refugee. Mm -hmm. That brings us back to cooking. Yeah. You know, food is an amazing tool for communication. We were talking about earlier and hope and how we connect with people. Food is a chance to really connect with people. It's about respect. It's about saying, I am equal to you, you are equal to me. We sit, we share. It's the, I think, the most intimate act you can have with another person. It's when, for me, an acquaintance becomes a friend, is when we've shared a meal. It's everything to me, food. Food is hope. I find laughter, love when I'm eating with families. It's a time when whatever's happening outside of the walls doesn't matter. That is what food represents to me. I was going to ask you, 
if it's getting harder to see beauty in the world when you're exposed to so many difficult stories. But no, it's obviously know, not. No, you know what? And I'll try and keep it, this answer brief because it's a long story, but there was a woman called Khulud who had been shot by a sniper in Syria. And she was one of the first people I photographed after my own injuries. And I got to know her and her husband and their family, and their amazing family, but they were living in a, in a tent made of, of cardboard, a, a sort of hut. And if you imagine a woman paralyzed on the neck down with no support, living in a makeshift tent in the middle of the Bekar Valley in Lebanon, so it was hot in the summer, wet in the winter. I've never met anybody in more desperate need of help. And I photographed her and told her story. And when I went back a couple of years later, I found that nothing had changed for them and they were still in the same situation. And I had a photograph with me. I, I would always take photographs back with me of the people I photographed to try and give it to them. And in my bag, I had this photograph that I'd taken of Khulud and Jamal um, two years before. And the photograph was exactly the same as what I was looking at in front of me because nothing had changed in their life. And in this photograph that I had taken, Khulud is lying in the bed and Jamal, her husband, sitting on the bed holding her hand. And the photograph I'd taken two years before was exactly the same scene that was still happening. And I thought, can I give them this photograph? Won't it just remind them of the suffering? Won't it remind them that nothing's changed? But they're such an amazing couple. It's always like laughter in this, this place. And you imagine she hadn't moved from that bed in two years, and yet she's always smiling. Jamal, her husband, when we go to this, like a little tiny kitchen on the side, and when we're in there, he'll, he'll whisper to me that his biggest fear is that she does not love him as much as he loves her. So anyway, so this photograph, and you, you can find it online, and we'll, we'll give a link to it. It's my favorite photograph. And they're just looking at each other and holding hands. So I took the photograph out of my bag, and I gave it to Khulud. I said, when I took this photograph, I did not take a photograph of a refugee. I did not take a photograph of a disabled woman. I was taking a photograph of a couple who are in love with each other. And this is a photograph of love. And that was the moment I realized that's why I'm not a war photographer. I actually document love. My images, if you look through all my work, I've never photographed anyone firing a gun or a tank or a plane. My photographs are of a grandmother brushing a grandchild's hair, a father doing maths on the floor with his kids, a mother feeding her baby, a couple like Khulud and Jamal holding hands. My work is to document love and love in terrible circumstances, but it's love that I find there. It's absolutely amazing. Gosh, it's the best. In I mean, I've been a terrible interviewer because I'm just wrapped looking at you <laughs> listening. <laughs> um, listening to you talk, I could do it for two days. I really appreciate you sharing the stories behind your work and giving us hope, I think, because I, in this world that we live in that is in so much turmoil, I think it can be hard to find the beauty, but you find it with your work every day. And you know what? It's, it's, it's very hard and very easy for people to be overwhelmed by the world. There's so much happening, so much going on that people just feel helpless because of the enormity of everything, mm. which is what I always say to people. Don't think of it that way. It's about creating small ripples. It's about throwing that little pebble in. And yeah. you, don't, you don't know the change that will be created by your actions each day. And it can be the smallest thing of just smiling at our neighbor. You know, a woman came to one of my talks and, and she's retired and she said, look, I, what am I going to do about Syria? And I looked at her and I said, well, you're not going to do much about it, I don't think. <laughs> I said, nor am I. <laughs> But I said, why don't, you, why don't you go and visit your local refugee centre? She said, I don't think there's one near me. I said, look at him, I bet you'll find one. And she did. And I said, well, why don't you bake a cake and take it down there? And she did. And, and then I got an email from her months later. And there's a picture with her and some women, I think, from Eritrea. And she was saying it's the highlight of her week now. She goes down every week with a cake and they sit and they chat and they share a cup of tea. The small acts of kindness. Exactly. And the power in the everyday because it's common humanity, isn't it? Remembering common humanity. And it's actually that simple. And it all starts with a simple kind act to the person who's next door to you. And if we all do that, we make the world a better place. I think that's a perfect note on which to end. Thank you so much. Thank you. Now it's getting hard. My parents feel that this is a waste of time. I don't go away because everything is just fine. My friends don't feel that. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. 
you can get in touch there and I really hope you will I'd love to hear from you and you can also find links to my social media and finally if you're enjoying the show please head over to iTunes and subscribe you know what they say first in best dressed subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis so I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion the better Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you where, okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends all feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you Because I love you